Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come to you, and Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy that you have given us. Lord, we ask that you just open the eyes to our hearts to hear what you would like us to hear. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you speak through Pastor Chris, um, and that you are just with us here and going forward the rest of this week. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Kayla. All right, we are continuing in Ephesians, and we are in Ephesians chapter 6. This section is, if you will, the wrap-up of the letter. However, it's not throwaway wrap-up. It's wrap-up as in, in light of all I've said, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and up until this point, you need to finally realize that as you live the Christian life, You are living this Christian life in the middle of a battle that is raging for the souls of men and women, and it's raging against especially Christians. In fact, the text that we're looking at calls this wrestling, wrestling. Look at verse 12 here. For we do not, the we as Christians, the the recipients of this letter, the church at Ephesus and beyond, the churches of Asia Minor, and then by extension us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so for Christians, we need to realize that whether we're parenting, whether we're doing marriage, whether we're seeking to build one another up with words that build up versus tear down, we are doing this all in the middle of an invisible spiritual battle. And you're in the war. You are experiencing the wrestlings, the wrestlings. And remember, wrestling is close quarters combat. This is physical, you know, head to chest arm behind the back, headlock. You're in close proximity warfare here. But we are not left without wisdom, and we are not left without weapons. And so we have been learning in the past two weeks, this week three now, about the armor of God, the spiritual weaponry with which Christians have, but they need to access it, they need to use it. They need to access it, and they need to use it. Now, About the wrestlings, okay, about the wrestlings, you must remember this, friends, that the wrestlings that you experience are always, without exception, under God's control and permitted and sometimes commissioned by Him. Let me say that a different way. You don't experience any spiritual warfare that has not gone through God's allowing and sometimes commissioning for your good, for your growth, for your endurance, for your being built up. And though it seems confusing and it feels terrible, why would God allow me to be attacked in order to strengthen me? Why would God allow me to be wrestled in order to build me up? That doesn't make sense. Like, why can't we just have some kind of spiritual protein drink or something? Why do we have to be wrestled by personal evil in order to grow and to be strengthened? God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is far beyond us. 
seeing the end from the beginning. This imagery came to me as I was thinking about all this this week. You, you guys all watch YouTube videos and clips, and sometimes the clips are teachings, and you need to hear something again. So you push on the little, little dot, and you kind of rewind a little bit, and you play it again. You're like, dot, rewind. God is like that. He's outside of time and space. And not that he rewinds history, but literally he sees it as a whole. Not only does he see the present moment that we're in, but he can look into the past and look into the future because he is literally outside of time and space. And that blows our mind because we are stuck in time and space. We don't have categories for outside of time and space, but God declares the end from the beginning. What that means is he sees every trial, trouble, temptation, discouragement, crippling depression. He sees it all, but he sees it all in light of what it will produce what it will produce. And for God, his allowing suffering, wrestling, temptation, discouragement, fill in the blank, whatever trouble you're facing right now, he sees the end results. He knows what it will produce, and therefore, it's a good. Let me say this, though, to qualify. The thing in itself might not be good. It might be pure evil. But good comes from it. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is probably Romans 8.28. Outside of John 3.16, I think every Christian knows Romans 8.28. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God works all things, all things, unqualified, for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. So therefore, the wrestlings in your life, friends, these wrestlings that we've been thinking about are for your growth. They're for your good. And we need to respond biblically, but yet fight. All right. What I want to look at here is these wrestlings always serving God's mysterious purpose. I have two texts here from the Old Testament. These two texts that I want to look at as kind of a preface to moving on to the gospel of peace on our feet, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit. As a preface to that, I want to look at, there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament that blows my mind because in two different accounts, we see God's purpose and Satan's purpose in the same event. This event would be King David numbering the people of Israel. King David numbering. David was the second king of Israel. He was um, the, the forefather of Jesus himself. Uh, he's often called the son of David, Jesus is. So if you want to follow along on the screen, it's First Chronicles 21, 1 to 4. Then we're going to jump a few texts just in, in light of time. Um, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So in this verse 1 here, we see Satan is behind this numbering of the people of Israel. Satan is inciting David to number Israel. Now, that numbering of the nation of Israel doesn't, it's not sinful in and of itself. But what we think is happening here is David is trusting not in God, but rather in the strength of his army, in the number of his people. He's looking not with faith, but he's looking at what he can see. Faith looks beyond sight and believes even in the light of what visibly seems otherwise oftentimes. Okay? Satan stood against Israel. So notice, who is Satan against? Israel. Who was Israel in the Old Testament? God's people, God's church. We could say Christians, okay? And what he did to be against Israel was he incited David to number Israel. Now, we have no information on exactly how that happened. I like to think of Satan somehow getting into the psyche of people, not taking them over and possessing them. And by the way, did you know that possession by demons is the opposite way that we should think about demonic warfare? We often think about people being possessed and not having control of their words or their bodies, and, and Satan possesses, in a sense, owns the person in that moment. A better way to think about that is people are demonized, demonized. In fact, that's a better translation of possession, demonized. What that means is demons and Satan are actively involved and wrestling with an individual. And what's interesting is when you look at the New Testament, it always says people have a demon. It doesn't say the demon has a person. Do you ever, you ever think about that? 
We, we often get this a little twisted. And we should think so because we're dealing with satanic warfare. And wouldn't we think that Satan would twist us all up like a pretzel? Of course he would. And so here we have Satan standing against Israel, inciting David to number the people, probably because of David's pride, probably to get David to trust in what he can see, his numbers, his army. So David said to Joab, the commander of the army, go, number Israel from Beersheba, Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, now Joab can see this is not good. Said, no, David. May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king, all of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? So David's even warned here. God sends a warning through Joab. Don't do it, man. Don't do it. We could say the Holy Spirit maybe is giving a warning here. You know, every temptation that comes, did you know there's a way of escape? The Lord will not let us be tempted beyond what we are able, but will always make a way of escape when being tempted. So maybe this is it for, for David here, a way of escape. Listen to Joab. But, verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. Now let's see what happened with that. So we're jumping now to verse 7. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. So this is plague-ish. Struck. He struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly. I have sinned greatly and that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servants, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. That would be a prophet. Someone who hears from God speaks to the king uh, as a prophet spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go, say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So now you're going to get three bad things. You pick out of the three, but one is coming for you. Right? This is kind of like when you say to your children, look, you're going to go to your room for an hour. You're going to get a hard swat on the butt, or you're going to be grounded for a week. You choose, but one's about to go down. Choose five, four, Three, like that's what's happening right here. Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose what you will. Either three years of famine, three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me, God. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. He chose option three. Let God strike us. All right, now, now this is about to blow your mind. 2 Samuel 24, 1-4, the same account in a different book from a different perspective. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Wait a minute. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. Who's them? Israel. Saying, saying God said this, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of, your, of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the, eye of my, while the eyes of my Lord, the king, still see it. But why does the Lord, the king, delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Let's see what happened. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. 
And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of man. What in the world is going on here? Here's what's going on here, friends. God wanted to judge Israel because he's mad at them. And so he enables, allows, perhaps commissions Satan to incite David to take a census, knowing that David will give in to the temptation and fall. And so God didn't directly commission, but he allowed Satan to do what Satan wanted to do. And he allowed David to choose what David wanted to do. Yet, it was the Lord who incited David, or I'm sorry, incited um, David ultimately to make this decision. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, what we are to make of this is Satan is God's Satan. Demons are God's demons. Ultimately, they accomplish his will. I could show you a ton of other texts. You want to see one? All right, here's one. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. This is the Apostle Paul who also wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus. He wrote here to Corinthians. This is a third letter. One is lost. This is the third. So to keep me, Paul's talking autobiographically, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. He's talking about seeing things that he, no, no prophet has ever seen, gospel revelation. But also he just went on to talk about a man who was caught up to heaven and saw things so great, so wonderful that he was not allowed to talk about. So he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the rev- revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. What is that? A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, notice here, this is a messenger of Satan sent, a messenger of Satan sent to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Whose purpose was it to keep Paul from becoming conceited? God's, not Satan. Satan wants Paul to become conceited. And so God literally allows a demon, perhaps a false teacher at Corinth, perhaps a physical ailment in his flesh, maybe his eyes. We don't know what it was. Okay? But whatever it was, it was demonically inspired, and God allowed it for his purposes. And his purposes was for Paul to not be conceited, and his purposes was for Paul to realize that when he's weak in and of himself, only then is he strong. And now we're saying, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like this. God, do it differently. We don't get a choice in the matter, friends. This is how God operates. He allows, enables, sends suffering, trial, trouble, tribulation. It baffles my mind. Jesus is being baptized, right? So the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator from John chapter 1, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He comes to earth. He lives 30 years kind of like in secret, just doing regular normal work. He's a craftsman. He's running a business. He's, you know, fathering his brothers when his, when his earthly father dies. But all of a sudden, he is entering into ministry. And his, if you will, inaugural uh, initiating moment was the baptism, his baptism. 
He's baptized by his cousin John. He goes under the water. He comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit is coming down upon him, anointing him for ministry in the form of a dove, and the Holy Spirit remains on him. And then we learn that immediately the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to what? To be tempted by the devil 40 days and 40 nights. Who led him into the wilderness to be tempted? The Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. I thought in the Sermon on the Mount we were taught, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, again, we have to be thinking nuanced Christians here when dealing with all of Scripture. What is happening in the wilderness is Jesus is fulfilling our lack of resisting temptation. We resist and we fall. We resist and we fall. Jesus resists and then he resists and then he resists and then he resists and Satan is defeated for us as a substitute. Substitute resistance of Satan because you are terrible at it and so am I. Like I get smacked around all the time. Anyone else? (laughs) Yeah, you just get smacked around. Okay, but we have a substitute resistor of temptation. But also, friends, we do need to know that the testing of your faith, James tells us in James chapter 1, that could be translated to tempting. It's the same thing. The testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its work, you will be complete lacking nothing. That's God's purpose. You see, Satan's purpose is to get you to fall. God's purpose in that same exact event is for you to win and to stand in the Lord's strength. Do you think that God, the Father, or the Holy Spirit wanted Jesus to fall by the temptation of Satan? No, he wanted Jesus to win, and therefore, he allowed the temptation. All right, so that's a lot of like, pre-preliminary thinking before we jump into the gospel of peace uh, on your feet and the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. Um, Sometimes these types of thinkings leave us questioning more than we have answers, but that's okay because sometimes you need to have questions that inspire you to go seek, to go seek, to go seek. David Pallison is, uh, he has been called the Yoda of biblical counseling, and I would agree with that. If you've ever read any of his stuff or listened to any of his messages, you're just, okay. David Pallison said this, our sufferings, whatever their form or cause, physical, psychological, spiritual, whatever their cause, provide occasions either to stumble or to stand. You're either going to stumble and fall or you're going to stand. Our warfare is over which it will be. Do you hear that? The warfare comes in over which is it going to be. Are you going to stumble or are you going to stand? And what we're hearing here is, back up just a bit, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. This armor has been given you that you might stand and not stumble in this warfare against the schemes, the methods, the planning and plotting of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all, there it is again, to stand firm. Firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, a number of Ephesian scholars, and rightly so, you can see it, believe that Paul is drawing from two sources here for his spiritual armor. He's drawing from Isaiah, the messianic prophecies of Jesus in Isaiah, and Jesus is seen with all this armor on. 
It's also being pulled from the Psalms. We could pull many different Psalms to see, all right, this is, this is rooted in the Old Testament. But in addition, he's also getting it from Roman soldier armor, okay, which at current time, he's probably chained to one or at least has one in the home where he's writing this, Acts chapter 28 on house arrest for two years. Okay? And so the, the belt of truth is our next, I'm sorry, the belt of truth was last week, and that was rooted in Isaiah 11.5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, who had not yet come. Okay? You can go read Isaiah 11, read the prophecy. It's fantastic. Okay, we're not going to go through the whole thing right now. The breastplate of righteousness from last week, Isaiah 59, 15 to 17. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He's talking about looking out across humanity, and he is going to be the Savior himself. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. God's going to do the saving himself. Is this not gospel? And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Okay? This is Jesus coming as Savior. The arm of salvation is God himself bringing salvation. We don't save ourselves. God is the one who saves us. There's no man who can do it. There was one man who did it, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now we're going to move on, and we're going to finish this section of Ephesians, okay, with our short time left here. Ephesians 6, 15 to 17. And after the belt of truth, after the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. All right, so shoes, we all have to wear them. Back in the day, this would have been sandals. This text is also rooted in Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Okay? Shoes for your feet. Now, the Roman soldiers had these kind of shoes. They were, they were like sandals because they were open-toed, but they were strapped and they had... Uh, nails-ish type bottoms. So think of cleats, our modern day cleats. And the, the purpose was so that you would be able to stand and if you got knocked around, you would have good footing. Just like if you're a soccer player and you're out in the soccer field, it's muddy, or you're a football player, you, you, if you have the spikes, you can get better grip. And so you're able to stand your ground with these types of shoes on. Now, Two, two ways I want to look at this, and I think this is appropriate to the text. One is the gospel, when embraced by you, gives you peace with God. Okay? And you having peace with God is what you most need. You most need peace with God. Because without Jesus in your place as a substitute, you're at war with him. Romans 8 talks about the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot cannot please him. Okay, so without the peace of God, there is immediate hostility. There is no neutral ground with God and people. We're either on his side in peace or we're against him. And to have the Lord against you is not what you want. The most powerful being in the universe upholding your existence, breath, and atoms is not who you want against you. Okay, so let's look at um, Romans 5 here. One of my favorite texts on the peace of God given to us through the gospel. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. All right, stop there for just a second. Justified is a big word that we don't use often in our normal everyday conversation. And what it means is you're not guilty, but you're not guilty on the basis of someone else's not guiltiness. It's the not guiltiness of Jesus given to you as a gift because you are guilty. In actuality, in practice, we are all guilt ridden, infested, but yet Jesus, not guilty. Not, who can charge me of sin, Jesus said in a crowd of his hostile enemies. Like, name one. <laughs> no one can charge him with any sin. And that not guiltiness, friends, is ours. Ours. Are you embracing it? Or are you living in the guilt of your own mess? That's the question. 
Now, now to be sure, if you do something sinful and shameful, you, you should feel it. Like, you should feel the guilt of that. You should feel the weight of that. You should feel the shame of that. But you don't live in it. You feel it. It draws you to God. It drives you to repentance. And listen, once you've said to God, I am sorry. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to think like this. I don't want to be like this. Help me. You've confessed your sins. And 1 John 1, 9 says, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The, the righteousness of Jesus is yours. It's as if you never did that horrible thing you just did, thought, or said. It's as if. And remember, this can only happen because on the cross, Jesus got treated as if he did all of your wicked sins, thought all your wicked thoughts, had all of your wicked motives. That's what the cross was all about. Jesus in your place. He got treated like you should get treated. And then by God the Father, we get treated like Jesus should get treated. And you get treated by God this way, not guilty. That's being justified. Okay? So since we have been justified, past tense, been justified, by faith, that means trust. We're going to get into this in a minute too. We simply trust in Jesus in our place. We trust that his death on the cross was for my sin, for your sin, you personally. We trust, faith, that his perfect obedience could be yours by just trusting, simply trusting, abandoning yourself, looking away from yourself, turning away from yourself, and turning to him. Faith. Since we've been justified by faith, we have something, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that verse. Romans 5.1 is one you should memorize. Since we've been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. It must only come through Jesus Christ. We don't get peace with God any other way, friends. There is one way to get peace with God, through Jesus Christ. How do we get that through Jesus Christness? Well, we trust. That's called faith. God is asking you to trust in Jesus in your place. He's asking you to ask him, the Father, for forgiveness of your sins through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, when you embrace Jesus as your Savior, friends, you have peace with the Father. No more hostility, none. Only fatherly love. And sometimes his fatherly love looks like discipline. Hey, but don't confuse, don't confuse discipline with, oh no, God is now at war with me again. He's not. No, he's disciplining you, wanting you to grow and to learn and to be wise and to move forward, to progress, to advance. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now we're living in God's favor, friends. And this favor is, it looks like we can now rejoice, rejoice. Like joy, but you rejoy over and over and over. Rejoice. In what? In the hope. Friends, listen, one of Satan's main temptations is to drive you to hopelessness. If you are hopeless, if you see nothing bright out in the future, you will either become murderously angry yourself or you will want to murder yourself. You will want to take people down with you or you will take yourself out. Friends, hopelessness leads to despair. Despair leads to, I, I just don't want to, I see no reason for living. Or you despise living itself and you just want to take down as many with you as you can, which I think is what motivates Satan. A murderer from the beginning. Friends, hope is the Christian's life. Out ahead of us, friends, we have billions upon billions of years of unending joy and ever-increasing beauty. Discovery for an infinite amount of time. That's yours very, very shortly. And yes, this life is dark. Yes, this life is disappointing. Yes, this life is hard. Yes, we are weak. But friends, that is a temporary place. Hope says, yeah, I'm here right now in this moment, but I'm not going to be here for long. 
That's hope. Hope is able to look into the future and see glory and bring it back into the now where it's broken and dark and busted and move on. You can move through the darkness, through the thick fog. You can move through it. How? Hope. Hope in what? In the glory of God. Friends, the day is coming when this earth, the the very Wilkinsburg that you're sitting in right now is going to be renewed, nude again, restored. No more death, no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain, no more racism, no more children just rebelling against you every day. That's where I'm living. (laughs) That's where I'm living, man. (laughs) Obedience, finally. And and as I say that, and as I say that, here's what God is saying to me in my own little dialogue that's happening in my head right now. Yeah, how's it feel, Chris? You learning? Because this is what it feels like, Chris. When you're utterly rebellious towards me. I hope that inspires you to have children very soon. (laughs) Not only that, verse 3, not only that, but look at this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Remember that James 1 passage? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, various kinds, for the testing of your faith produces endurance, endurance, steadfastness, and steadfastness gives you a completeness completeness so that you're lacking nothing. Well, this is very similar. Look. We rejoice in sufferings, knowing that, knowing that's solid, stand on this, knowing that suffering produces something. What is God up to in our suffering? Look, it produces endurance. Endurance means you're able to keep going. Like how many of you have tried to to run two miles if you've not run in like 10 years? Yeah, you're going to throw up, you're going to lay down, you're going to cry, your legs are going to cramp. Endurance is two miles, blowing past that, four miles, blowing past that, and you're like, you need to build up in order to run four or five miles straight. Okay, that's endurance. Well, in order for you to keep going amidst the onslaught of trials and tribulations that life has to offer, you need endurance. Endurance. In order to keep going, you need endurance. And look, suffering produces endurance. That's what God's up to, friends. So you can say to yourself, why is this happening? And you ask, oh, I know, I know. God is producing endurance in me right now. So we always ask the why question. Well, this is an answer. It's solid. It's sure. It's the word of God. You have an answer. God is up to something. And he's always up to more than just one or two or thousand things. But this is one thing he's up to. He's producing endurance in you. Endurance produces character. Okay, character is your godliness. Your, your, listen, this is what character is. Character is me saying, all right, I want you to come over to my house, and you can stay in my house. I'm going to be gone for a week. I don't have any security cameras. And, by the way, here's the code to the safe. Here's the keys. And I'm not, I'm not imagining one thing going wrong, because I know you're a person of godly character. Because I know that you are one who loves his neighbor as himself, loves her neighbor as herself. And you know what Romans 13 says about love? Love fulfills the law, for love does no harm to a neighbor. Not in speech or in actions. Therefore, if you're a person of character, you are to be trusted. You are to be granted with great responsibility, and you will be, not only by God, but by people too. And this is what God is doing. He's making you into the image of Christ, whose character was of the highest quality. He wants you to be godly like Jesus. This is what Romans eight twenty nine says. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. There's that hope looking forward into the future, seeing the good, seeing the beauty, seeing the glory, bringing it back into the now. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, the love of God 
is not only given by the Holy Spirit, but this text is saying it is the love of God. The, the Holy Spirit is the love of God, and He is the love of God between the Father and the Son. He is the love of God between the Father and His children. But He's a person. He's the Holy Spirit. And Him living inside the Christian, He living inside the Christian, enables you and empowers you to love like, the, like this. Love that does no harm to a neighbor, fulfilling the law. Okay? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, I love verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly, you and me. Friends, there is no hint, no hint in the gospel that your godliness, your goodness, your good works, your good anything gives you any credit with God. No, this verse 6 here of Romans 5 says, while we were still weak, while you were in your mess, while you were in your junk, while you were messing up, at the right time, right then and there, Christ died for the ungodly, not for the godly. Friends, this is hope for anyone and everyone. This is hope for the worst person you know. This is hope for you, because I know that only your conscience speaks to you darkly, as only your conscience can do. And we know our sin like no one else knows our sin. And this text is saying that even though our conscience tells us we're ungodly, that's who Jesus died for. This is, this is part of how you fight. When, when Satan and demons come to you and they say, you're, you're the most ungodly person ever, and it sounds like it's in the third person, you are the most ungodly person ever. It's a good way to distinguish who, who's talking to me. Is this me or is this another voice? You, you, you. If you hear that kind of language, you need to be like, who is talking to me right now? You say, yes, I am ungodly, and that's who Jesus died for. Me, the ungodly. And that's how you fight, friends. And when you fight like that, it's amazing. You actually get more godly. <laughs> God produces in you character. How does he do that? Well, we could go backwards. We could go backwards, but we won't because we don't have time. So the peace of God is ours now, and we have it through Jesus Christ. Remember, what's the text? And as shoes for your feet, this is spiritual weaponry, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel brings peace with you and God no more war, you're in his favor, while you were ungodly, that's when Jesus died for you, okay? But in a second sense, this gospel of peace needs to be given. It needs to be given. So you see here the readiness, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We need to be ready, as Peter says, to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. But we need to do this with gentleness and respect. So we need to be ready to share the gospel at any time, because we have peace with God, because our conscience has been cleansed, because we know the peace of God experientially, we want others to have that, this beautiful gift. Now, I, I know the problem. The problem is when you even mention the word Christian and Bible, automatically people say, you're a bigot, you're a hater, you, you can't stand and, and fill in the blank. You're oppressive just by nature of you identifying with Jesus. That's the culture we live in right now. Okay? But we still need to reject that lie that is infiltrating and spreading throughout the culture. We reject that lie and say, no, 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 no. This is a gospel of peace. This is not a gospel of bigotry. This is not a gospel of hate. This is not a gospel of discrimination. This is a gospel of peace. You fight that way. And you share the gospel of peace. Regardless now, you do it with gentleness and respect. We don't hammer people with the gospel. We don't shoot them with the shotgun of the gospel. We, we share it with love and with gentleness and respect. Okay, so this gospel is ours in that it's our peace with God. That is how you fight Satan. You remind him and you remind yourself that I am at peace with God. He is not against me. He is for me. And if he is for me, then who can be against me? Who can be against me if the most powerful being in the universe is for me? But also, this gospel makes us ready and able to share. Verse 16, 
in all circumstances. All circumstances? That means any situation you find yourself in, any ugly place, any beautiful place, in any circumstance, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, we could literally take weeks and weeks and weeks just on that all the flaming darts of the evil one because they are numerous and many. And they come to us from the headlines. They come to us from overseas. They come to us from inner turmoil. They come to us from things our family has said to us, things that our coworkers now say to us, things our spouse have said to us, and on and on the darts come, on and on and on, daily darts How are you going to think about this? How are you going to process this? What are you going to do with this news? What are you going to do with this thought? What are you going to do with this temptation? And remember, in the evil day, we need to stand. When is the evil day? Potentially every day. Friends, we need to take up the shield of faith. Now, this this shield, God is a shield all through the scriptures, okay? So we'll, we'll do that first. I didn't read the Isaiah text there. Shoes of the gospel of peace. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publish peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. I did read that. Um, (laughs) Shield of faith. Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Real quickly, let's, let's look at this. So God, look, God is something to the psalmist. God needs to be something to you. What is God? He's a rock and a fortress. Now, think of a rock fortress. Think of a rock fortress. Um, the image that immediately comes to mind, because I'm like a J.R.R. Tolkien head, is, is the battle of the five armies, and they're posted up in like the mountain, and it's, it's this crazy gate, and you can't get in. And So literally, imagine a fortress built into the side of a mountain, a rock face. It's just impenetrable. God is this rock, and he is our fortress, and he is our deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. So taking refuge is finding help, finding shelter, finding a place to hide. You find the place to hide. You find the help. You find the shelter. Where? In God. In God. He is my shield. Okay, now, uh, Tim Keller showed me this, but I think it's, it's brilliant, so it's worth repeating. What do shields do for people? We don't use shields often. So in, in Roman times, these shields were the big, like this tall, you know, four or five feet ones, and you hide behind the whole thing. And what they would do is they would put leather on it, and they would soak the leather in water, and there would be wood behind it, and there'd be metal trim. And what would happen is ancient warfare, not only would they have archers that were very skilled, but they would dip the, the arrows in pitch and light them on fire. And so when these arrows would come, they would splat the, the fiery pitch and it would catch anything it, it, it caught on fire. It would, it would hit and just immediately light it up. Well, with a leather-soaked uh, skin, the pitch would hit it and it would, it would distinguish it, extinguish it not distinguish it. It would extinguish it, okay? Fire extinguisher, not fire distinguisher. So this, the idea here is the fiery darts are being shot at you by Satan and demons all day, okay? And your faith in who? In God will enable you to extinguish the flaming arrows, okay? But notice, my shield the horn of my salvation. So, so again, t- t- Tim Keller. Tim Keller said that, what do shields do? Well, in our illustration, they extinguish arrows. If you're in hand-to-hand combat and it's close quarters, it, they take the blows in your place. They, they, someone's trying to hit you with a club. Someone's trying to hit you with an arrow. Someone's trying to hit you with a sword. And, and the shield takes the blow in your place. God is like that for us. When did God take blows for you? The cross. Your your shield of faith is you need to remember that Jesus has taken all the deadly blows for you. He literally went to hell for you on the cross. And friends, you are safe. No fear of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. 
Jesus in your place, he is your shield. Okay? So in one sense, our faith in God, our trust in him, he is our refuge, he is our shield. We run to him for help. But in another sense, Jesus is the shield that has taken the blow for us. He is the shield in whom we need to have faith. But then, in another sense, we have faith in God, listen, in God, that now that we're in Christ, He will be our help in a time of trouble. In fact, this is what Psalm 46, 1-3 says, God is our refuge and strength. Remember, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Don't be strong in and of yourself. Don't be strong in your skills or, or, or any of your gifts. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. Present, that means he's there, he's with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. A very present help, when? In trouble. In trouble. Listen, when you're wrestling with the devil, you're in trouble. So when is God very present? When you're wrestling with the devil. Again, remember, the shield of faith enables you to extinguish the fiery darts Faith in who? God. When your faith is in God, knowing He is very present with you in the moment, in the moment, therefore we will not fear. And then and look at this language. This is poetic, exaggerated, but you get it. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Okay, that's talking about the ocean being raging. Okay, the idea here is, though the forces of nature are disintegrating and against you, God is your help in that kind of trouble. And sometimes life feels like that, doesn't it? It does. The waters roar and foam Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, it feels like the earth is giving way and the mountains are being moved into the heart of the sea. The idea is that mountains are like immovable objects. Like you can't even climb one, let alone move one. And the idea here is that this, this solid, unmovable object is being uprooted and thrown into the Like we're in trouble if that happens. And the idea is, even in that kind of trouble, God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in time of trouble. Friends, when the day of trouble comes for you, you need to remember this verse. You need to remember the shield of faith. You will have faith in something. And perhaps that day of trouble will show you what your faith is actually in. Some of us trust in our wealth. Some of us trust in our health. Some of us trust in our spouse. Some of us trust in our intellect and our jobs and so on and so forth. Our faith is not in God. And I don't want this to happen to you. I don't want it to happen to me. But sometimes when the thing that we have faith in fails us, then we run to God for help. 